Okay, good evening again. <laughs> Did you see the moon? Brilliant, huh? Phenomenal. When we were walking to dinner, I saw the moon just rising up through the trees, glowing, and then um, walking up here this evening, just this, this presence in the sky. Beautiful to have the presence of this moon as we are really in the heart of our retreat this evening. And these teachings are like a finger pointing to the moon. We just keep pointing you in the direction of awakening to really the luminosity, the beauty, the mystery, the wonder of, of who and what you really are. It's a bit of a dance on these retreats deciding what to talk about because we care for our talks to be responsive to what's happening in the retreat. And after the interviews, some of the practice discussions, I thought, okay, maybe, maybe I need to do a talk on compassion because we know there's plenty of beauty happening here and there's plenty of dukkha, right? There's plenty of places of struggle and challenge and and suffering, maybe you've, you've um, planned your escape route or maybe you've given that up by now. And uh, I'm actually gonna share a bit about a, a sutta tonight, the Bahia Sutta, that's been alive for me lately because I just realized that, you know, what frees the, the places of stress and tension most deeply is our understanding. Now, when we understand, the knots and the tangles begin to let go of our hearts. So in, in the way that we, um, we talk about this, this path being like a bird with two, a great bird with two wings, one wing being the wing of, of the heart, of compassion, of love, and one wing being the wing of, um, of the wisdom that grows as we develop clear seeing. And, and, and they re- the two really can't, can't be separated, as Howie was speaking about during the metta period this afternoon. <laughs> Care is the natural expression of a heart that doesn't have much in the way. I was teaching a few weeks in Durango. I was teaching a day-long retreat and I was on my lunch break. And our center there is on, on the river. So we can walk down to a, a trail that's along, along the river. And I was walking and I was feeling restless in my mind. I was aware and just thinking a bit about there's, there's two, two very dear people in my life who are, who are meeting some really deep loss and some, some scary diagnoses. And um, I was just thinking about them and feeling some measure of agitation, some measure of sadness. It was okay. And I was noticing the kind of the ripples in the mind and heart of that experience. And I was, I was just walking along and in this one moment, my, you know, my eyes just turned toward the river and there was a family of ducks right in the middle of a Colorado winter, <laughs> a family of ducks just swimming along in the Animas River. And there was something about the way that the, the kind of um, deep blue-green color of the river 
and the, the presence of these ducks and the way they were moving through the water, it, it completely uh, like drew me. You know, like my mind stopped. All that other stuff just stopped. And in that moment, there was nothing in the world except for this experience of seeing and being with, you know, the, the light hitting the water and the ducks bobbing around together. That was all there was. It was like a spontaneous moment of connection, of just a feeling of, of wonder. It just stopped me, brought me in, into presence. And there was a way I was aware of just the grace of some moments of pure being, just purely, purely being, not adding to the experience in any way, not framing it up in a particular way, but just being right there. And in these, in these moments of seeing some words of, of a sutta that I'll share with you some tonight, the Bahia Sutta started coming through my, my heart, you know, and, and some of the words from the sutta are, are in the scene, there's only the scene. In the herd, there's only the herd. In the sensed, there's only the sensed. In the cognized, there's only the cognized. Speaking to this way of very, very direct, um, direct perceiving. And, and this was an instruction that the Buddha gave to a practitioner who was wanting to understand. And I'll say in these talks that we give up here, you know, we, we throw around a bunch of words, we, we talk about the, the teachings, and um, you know, it's, it's helpful to let the talks land in your body to let them land in your body, in your awareness. Even if it doesn't make complete sense to you, you know, something goes in in this experience of being together and relating in this way. So I want to tell you a story, um, a story from the Udana, not unlike what Tara was speaking about last night, Udana also means inspired utterances. And this is a, a sutta where the Buddha gave a direct teaching to a man named Bahia. And Bahia was a really well-practiced guy. He um, had been an ascetic for many, many years. He wasn't a follower of the Buddha. But he... he um, appeared to be very well respected in his community. And it's my hunch that he knew how to get his mind very concentrated. And when, when we point you to come back to your anchor, to come back to the experience of stepping, walking, breathing, it's to develop this collectedness of heart that allows the investigation to, go, to penetrate much more deeply. And I, I think he was very, very skilled in in concentration, and he must have been because he was said to be an ascetic that wore bark. He didn't wear robes, he wore tree bark. Can you imagine wandering around? I mean, it's like, it really kind of, Spirit Rock seems pretty luxurious if you can imagine practicing covered in, in tree bark. 
And he started to think that he must be enlightened. You know, he's getting really concentrated, having all these particular states. And, and I'm sharing this because, you know, as we go along in the practice, there tends to be a narrative of either, boy, I've got it now. <laughs> Smooth sailing from here on out. Have you, have you ever had that thought? Or maybe you've had an opposite thought. Maybe for you it's been, I just can't get it together. This sucks. I suck. You know, so, so there's a way the practice is just going along. But, but there's often an inner narrator that will, you know, good enough, not good enough, good enough, good, not good enough. And one person talks about this inner narrator as being like a roommate in your mind. But if you actually lived with a roommate who talked to you the way that inner roommate does, you'd probably kick them out. But it's not so simple in our, in our own minds. So he, um, he, he thought he was, you know, pretty great in his practice. And... And a deva, and a deva are these, in the, in the Buddhist cosmology, a deva's kind of a, they live in a certain realm where there's a lot of pleasure and beauty, not as much material or grit for waking up as there is in this human realm. And there was a deva who used to be a blood relative to Bahias. This is like a maybe ancestor sort of spirit. Came to him and said, Bahia, you are not an arhant. And Arhant is a being who is very fully realized. And he said, Bahia, you're not an Arhant. And not even are you not an Arhant, you're not even on the right path here. You know, you're not even on a path that's going to grow your, your, um, your deepest freedom. And, and this, this Deva, in a certain sense, she was bringing a quality of fierce compassion to Bahia, saying, you know, dude, you're way caught up in your, in your ideals. He was striving, but it wasn't grounded in wisdom. It wasn't grounded in, in, in a liberative view. And Bahia, Bahia um, really heard the deva, and he said to the deva, he said, who in this vast world is awakened? And who has entered the path of awakening? And it's important not to miss this word, Awakening. If you consider and feel into, you know how the state of being asleep feels a certain way? Occluded, kind of in our own world, sometimes heavy. And the state of being awake is so different than the state of being asleep. So he's seeking who who is awakened. And and, uh, the deva pointed him in the direction of where the Buddha was, was practicing and teaching. And this was um, at Savati, a, a grove, Jeddah's grove in the forest. So he's, the deva points, she points, um, she points Bahia in the direction of the Buddha. And Bahia decided to go to the Buddha. But this was before there were buses, you know, before there were airplanes. And a friend of ours, a teaching colleague, Andrea Fella, was able to go on her phone and figure out how long would it take to walk from the coast of India into to, um, Savati, the city where the Buddha was dwelling. And it said that it would take 303 hours of walking. That's like walking without sleeping or stopping for 12 days straight. Or with, you know, sleeping eight hours a night, that's 19 days of walking. 
So he really wanted the teaching. He was motivated and he was willing to really put in some effort to go, to go find the Buddha. And then he got there. He got to the town and he couldn't find the Buddha because the Buddha had left the town to go do, to go do his alms round, which is just a little you know, obstacle. He'd walked a really long way and it didn't quite go his way. Maybe you can relate, right, to the elements of the story. And so he, uh, he went and he found the Buddha. And the way that his, his experience of the Buddha was described, he said the Buddha was, was calm, calm and calming. So his, he was a calm kind of being, but there was a power for Bahia just being in the presence of the Buddha that was calming. And all the ways we affect one another that we can see and not see. And I, I can't imagine what it would have been like to be in the actual presence of a heart-mind that's completely free. That's part of why when we hear these stories, people are like popping awake all the time because of the power, the power of his presence. Calm, serene, inspiring confidence, his senses at peace, his mind at peace. And so Bahia bowed to the Buddha's feet and said, Oh, great one, teach me the Dhamma, teach me the Dhamma. Teach me the Dhamma that will be for my long term welfare and bliss. He's, already, he's asking a little bit from, you know, he wants to be free, but he's wanting it in the spirit of bliss. And this path is, as you know, this path is about more than bliss. And the you know, Buddha said, it's not a good time. I've gone, into, I've gone into town for alms. It's not a good time. And Bahia said to the Buddha, he said, it's hard to know for sure what dangers there may be for your life or what dangers there may be for mine. Please teach me the Dhamma. So he's pleading with the Buddha and he's feeling an urgency, you know, because he's aware, he's aware that death is certain and the time of death is uncertain. Yeah, it's interesting as I say this, I, I'm, I'm interested, it's like, oh, no wonder that came into my mind walking on the river that day. And so the second time, uh, the Buddha says back, this, is, this isn't a good time. We've gone into town to do our alms. And he asks a third time, he says again, it's hard to know for sure what dangers there may be for your life or what dangers there may be for mine. Please teach me the Dharma. And so magically the third time, um, the Buddha said, the Buddha said, okay, I'll teach you the Dharma. You know, and I think about what we're doing here together. You know, I know at the end of my life, I will not regret, you know, all of the, the times I've chosen to step away from the, the momentum of my daily life and practice in this way. You know, no matter how challenged you are here, it's my hunch that you probably won't regret at the end of your life having done the practice that you're doing here. 
It really brings into the forefront what's most important. And we, and we practice. I don't know a better practice for life. I also don't know a better practice for death. Okay, so I'll just read you the instruction that the Buddha gave to Bahia when Bahia's pleading with him about how to practice. And of course, Bahia got like immediately enlightened. So you never know, huh? <laughs> so, so here's what he said. He said, this is how you should train Bahia. In what is seen, let there be just the seen. And what is heard, let there be just the heard. And what is sensed, let there just let there be just what is sensed. And what is cognized, let there be just what is cognized. Then Bahia, you will not be in that. When you are not in that, there is no you there. When there is no you there, then you are neither here, nor there, nor in between. This, just this, is the end of suffering. So I want to talk a little bit about, like, what, 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 is, what does he mean here? You know, the, the pith of the teachings here and I'll tell you what happens next because the end of it matters to this whole, this whole story. But um, the pith of these teachings, he's, he's talking about actually something that, that Tara mentioned in the fourth foundation of mindfulness. He's talking about basically the part of the Satipatthana, the sixth sense basis, this process of perceiving that's going on all the time. But we don't realize it. And most of the time, you know, we, we um, aren't directly perceiving because there's so much stuff in the way. And, you know, this path is guiding us to know just a simplicity of being that Yang pointed to this morning, a simplicity of being. And part of the work of the practice is to know what, what complicates the experience of being. What gets in the way of the simplicity that you might intuit or taste sometimes, but not, not live in all the time. You could probably make long lists of what gets in the way. You know, what gets in the way is the, pr- the proliferations, all of the constructions, all of the views and beliefs and fabrications that we're always adding on to a bare sense experience. It's like the moment of just seeing those ducks. It's beautiful. And then you know what happens is like, where are the other ducks? Can't these ducks hang around? You know, why, why don't I see ducks more often? I want to see a brighter duck. You don't know.
So what gets in the way of connecting with the simplicity of, of being and of experience is, is the way that we fixate our experience. And I don't mean fix like make better, but I mean, I mean fix as in, as in a, a narrowing of experience. You know, the, you know, the feeling of kind of living within the scaffolding of, of ideas with concepts that paint over a reality that's much more alive, much more brilliant. So when the scene is only the scene, it's like there's an eye, you know, there's the organ of an eye, there's the object out there, consciousness seeks an object, boom, there's the experience of contact and and the experience of seeing. What gets in the way? Our confusion, our delusion. I was on a three-month retreat, as long as we're considering that the Joseph transmission that Tara, Tara talked about last night. I was on a, on a three-month retreat a lot of years ago, and I was having a, a really beautiful retreat. It was well into the retreat. I was really settled in, and I was going through this process of noticing that when I went into the, the dining hall at IMS for lunch, I, my mind just got really... Uh, revved up and honestly really aversive. And I was like, there was all these people and all these food. And I was watching people like wipe their nose with their hand and grab the utensils in the line and people throwing their stuff all over. And so I was, I was putting a lot of energy into my retreat and getting there after everybody had gone through the food line um, so that, that things were more settled, but so that there would still be the food that I wanted to eat. Be, be there. And so I went in for an interview with Joseph and I said, Joseph, you know, I've got this whole thing going on about my experience in the dining hall. Maybe I need to do some therapy around this. You know, I didn't realize how loaded this is for me. And I, I'm wondering if this was related to my mom. She liked to be in the kitchen so much and was very full in the kitchen all the time. And he's like, Aaron, you know, whoa, stop right here. <laughs> and, um, it was just so so direct the way he broke it down for me. You know, at that point he, he said, "What's happening is that you're you're going into the dining hall, you're, you're seeing all this stuff going on, all these people, all this stuff going on. You're seeing it, and it's unpleasant. It's like bam, that's manageable right there. Awareness can hold the experience of seeing an unpleasant. You know, in the scene." It's just the scene. That's it. All of the agitation, all of the dukkha was the way that my mind was was adding so much extra to what's a very moment-to-moment experience. And it actually, that instruction completely shifted for me. My experience of lunch for the rest of the retreat, which is good. (laughs) And so my practice became going to the dining hall and being aware of the experience of seeing aware of, of, of some of the unpleasantness, and that awareness could be with that no problem. Like very, very simple. Or, in the herd is just the herd. What happens when you hear this bell? 
You know, sometimes I might be like, oh, what a relief. Thank goodness hearing the bell means I'm going to get out of here for a while. You know, it might be that you hear the sound of a bell like outside and it's not what you want. You know, you want to keep doing what you're doing. How is it to just experience the activity of awareness in the, in, in the herd? Let there be just the herd. This is really an invitation to become very intimate with your experience. You're very intimate with your experience and to notice the moments on this retreat when you're there and um, you know, things are fresh. The awareness is fresh. It's just the freshness of the, of the moment. And part of the instruction, you know, in, in what is sensed, let there be just the sense, speak into the felt sense, to all that we sense and feel and know. You know, in the cognized, speaking to the, all that we can become aware of and understand. You know, there's two words that can be really helpful for this process because, you know, it's not enough to know that we don't need all of the extra. And it can just be this too. <laughs> Your back hurts, okay, this too. You're thinking about something going on at home that keeps coming back around for you, okay, this too. You're, you're grieving or you're an experience of loss. This, this too. Because all we need to do, it's like James Baldwin It says the world changes according to the way people see it. And if you alter even for a millimeter the way people look at reality, then you can change it. All we need is a, a millimeter or a centimeter. You know, and, and, and the place where that comes in is just a moment of are you willing to be present with this? Are you willing not to get on the train of all the fabrications, but to actually get curious about the experience of what's being known? I want to share with you a passage from um, Spell of the Sensuous by David Abram. And it, it's kind of a... Um, sharing of one of his experiences of perceiving in this way, in this kind of direct, immediate way that I'm pointing to here and that, and that, that this sutta points us toward. Kind of the neither here nor there nor in between. He says, late one evening, I stepped out of my little hut in the rice paddies of eastern Bali and found myself falling through space. Over my head, the black sky was rippling with stars, densely clustered in some regions, almost blocking out the darkness between them, and more loosely scattered in other areas, pulsing and beckoning to each other. 
Behind them all streamed the great river of light with its several tributaries. Yet the Milky Way churned beneath me as well, for my hut was set in the middle of a large patchwork of rice paddies, separated from each other by narrow dikes, and these paddies were all filled with water. The surface of these pools by day reflected perfectly the blue sky, a reflection broken only by the thin, bright green tips of new rice. But by night, the stars themselves glimmered from the surface of the paddies, and the river of light whirled through the darkness underfoot as well as above. There seemed no ground in front of my feet, only the abyss of star-studded space falling away forever. I was no longer simply beneath the night sky, but also above it, and the immediate impression was one of weightlessness. I might have been able to reorient myself to regain some sense of ground and gravity were it not for a fact that confounded my senses entirely. Between the constellations below and the constellations above drifted countless fireflies, their lights flickering like the stars, some drifting up to join the clusters of stars overhead, others like graceful meteors slipping down from above to join the constellations underfoot. And all these paths of light upward and downward were mirrored as well in the still surface of the paddies. I felt myself at times falling through space, at other moments floating and drifting. Isn't that beautiful? Beautiful to me how he gives language. And it's kind of a sense of, like he just walked out of his hut and was completely surprised, right? By what he was perceiving. And this is kind of how insight works. It's kind of how insight works. We, we plant the seeds and plant the seeds and in, and in moments that we can't predict, there's the possibility of not being so bound up, not being so gripped in a habitual or narrow way of perceiving, because reality is not narrow. This too. Am I willing to be present with this? Is it on, on now?
it's like that, isn't it? It's like there can be these moments where it's a profound perception, you know, it's like on my way of a subtle pointing toward ultimate reality and then bam, you know. <laughs> it's, it's like that in our lives. It's like, like all here together, you know, all here together, the sacred and the profane, it's all here together. And where you are is the entry point. Nothing left out. Where you are, as Kabir says, is the entry point. So there's a difference between cognizing from a clear Dhamma way and cognizing through all the filters, all the framework. Because when we're cognizing through all the filters and all the framework, it's so conditioned, isn't it? It's so deeply, deeply, deeply conditioned. It's conditioned from the culture. It's conditioned from your personal life. You know, Krishnamurti, our friend Sebene, translates all these great teachings and all these great teachings about the mind and society. But, you know, essentially what, he, what he's saying is you think you're thinking your thoughts... You're not, you're thinking the culture's thoughts. It's just important to remember this for ourselves sometimes because it can feel so much like, why am I so obsessed with this? You know, and you're, you're situated within a culture that rewards our obsessions in a certain way. You know, so it's a very deep process of an unwinding from the spell that happiness lies in things being different or that happiness lies in always being in charge of things. And when we are perceiving in this way with all of the fabrications at work, we attribute things to the experience that aren't actually in the experience. That's part of how we actually miss each other. That's part of how race, gender, stereotypes, pieces of ways of perceiving with very deep consequences to many, many, many people. Um, that's kind of how we freeze frame ourselves and one another. This attributing things to the experience that aren't in the experience. Attributing constancy to an experience that's actually, in its essence, like Tara was pointing to, quite inconstant, ever-changing, much more ephemeral than substantial. So we're unwinding from a spell and opening to a more innate way for the heart and mind to be responding. It's like not predetermined very spontaneous, and we're opening to what's actually trustworthy. You know, we're opening to a, a, a purity that's accessible to anyone, each of us in this room, and anyone in any moment, in, in a moment of recognizing the activity of awareness. Recognizing the capacity for peace and simplicity just in a moment of being aware. And that peace has less to do with the objects being known and more to do with the flavor of awareness itself. All the objects become a little less satisfying, a little less interesting. So we're, we're unhooking 
the awareness from the deeply, deeply seated patterns. Carl Jung says it well. He says, I, I feel very strongly that I'm under the influence of things or questions which were left incomplete and unanswered by my parents and grandparents and more distant ancestors. It often seems as if there were an impersonal karma within a family that's passed on from parents to children. It's always seemed to me that I had to complete or perhaps continue this which previous ages had left unfinished. Do you feel that sometimes? I know I do. I'm like, you know, why is this happening through me right now? Like I didn't choose it but it's my responsibility. Here we are. So the, the process is really the process of, of um, opening to a larger mystery, opening to a larger picture, getting unhooked because it's the basic function of the personality really to to um, reduce, reduce awareness, to restrict awareness. And we pay so much attention to the objects that we miss the, the spontaneous knowing that's here in every moment. You know, it's, it's selfless. It arises moment after moment after moment. That's what's um, being pointed to in the sutta. And so... You know, the second part of the sutta, then bahia, you will not be in that. When you are not in that, there is no you there. When there is no you there, then you are neither here nor there nor in between. So again, he's pointing to this innate functioning of the mind and heart. He's pointing to kind of dropping the idea that we always have to be in control. He's pointing to a kind of timeless presence because there's no you there, but you, um, you don't stop being a person. You become even more of a real person, but you realize that there's no stage director for this show. You realize you're not just the monologue in your mind. You know, you're not just your your flesh. And so when the Buddha said this to Bahia, he completely, his heart and mind, the sure heart's release, like completely free. And he was known as being the one who is foremost in understanding quickly. And after he received the instruction, the Buddha um, finished his alm rounds and went and ate. And in that time, what happened is that Bahia got caught between a mother cow and her calf, and he was killed. And so it circles back to like, no wonder the urgency of his plea, asking the Buddha over and over again, like, I don't know 
how long you're going to be here, dear Buddha. I don't know how long I'm going to be here. Please teach me the Dhamma. So fascinating, huh? Like if he hadn't been persistent with the Buddha, who, who knows? Who knows what would have happened for him? And and um, and so they went and told the Buddha of his of his death, but he is passing. And they started building building a memorial. They started grieving and building a memorial. And the Buddha basically it was was praising uh, Bahia for for this kind of being being quick to understand. And the Buddha said, "Yes, Bahia became totally unbound." It's important to know what we're doing here. It really is onward leading. This is way bet, way more than just practicing to feel better. And I just wanted to <laughs> to just share these last words, whether or not they make much sense. Um, you know, the Buddha was just appreciating, wow, but he received the teachings, he got it right before the end of his life. And the Buddha was appreciating the poignancy of that. And um, at the end of the whole sutta, what, 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 what the Buddha exclaims is this. He's really using the four elements, earth, air, water, and fire, as, as a deeper, um, more subtle pointing to the to the more ultimate to the absolute, really. He says, where water, earth, fire, and wind have no footing, there the stars don't shine. The sun isn't visible. There the moon doesn't appear. There darkness is not found. And when a practitioner has realized this for themselves, then from form and formlessness, from bliss and pain, they are freed. Huh? It's actually quite beautiful and, and really, it's interesting. This, this is the paradox that Tara was pointing to last night because he's saying the stars don't shine, the sun isn't visible, the moon doesn't appear, but darkness is not found. You feel into that, it kind of throws the conceptual mind up in the air. Like, what, what, is, what is that sense right there? He's really pointing to the way that practicing in this way can lead us to not being so caught up in the world of phenomena. You know, not having things be so sticky. Not being stuck, caught, um, hooked up in a certain sense, hooked in. And that you're still a person. You know, you're still a person. You'll, you're still here. So this this beautiful sutta that just starts with an invitation, like when you're walking, just walk. When you're breathing, just breathe. When you feel like your mind is just a big thought dump, just be with that, the awareness of that present moment, present moment time. So there's so, so much really, so much in this in the sutta, and it's fun sometimes to make these ancient teachings just kind of come alive in our own hearts.
this coming home again and again, this is part of, um, you know, the mindfulness is what moves us from a superficiality of how we perceive into really seeing more of what is. And it, 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 it always starts from actually touching, holding, being intimate with what's right here. This too. And if you're low on confidence, you know, if you're finding yourself in doubt or something, you can borrow some of my confidence because I have a lot of confidence in what we're doing here together. I have a lot of confidence in the liberative um, potential of, of, of what we're doing, of our practice. And I'll close with a poem by Annie Lightheart called The Second Music. And after I finish this, we'll just sit for a moment or two together. Now, I understand that there are two melodies playing. One below the other. One easier to hear. The other lower, steady. Perhaps more faithful for being less heard, yet always present. When all other things seem lively and real, This one fades, yet the notes of it touch as gently as fingertips as the sound of names laid over each child at birth. I want to stay in that music without striving or cover. If the truth of our lives is what it is playing, the telling is so soft that this mortal time this irrevocable change becomes beautiful. I stop and stop again to hear the second music. I hear the children in the yard, a train, then birds. All this is in it, and it will be gone. I set my ear to it as I would to a heart. Thank you for your attention this evening. We'll take some minutes for um, for walking, stretching, and the last sitting of the evening will will be will be at nine. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.